0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Reacting to the Assange verdict with UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Nils Meltzer. From an interview by Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi. This conversation was held live on the day of the court ruling in the UK against Julian Assange, founder and publisher of WikiLeaks. On December 10, 2021, the British Court of Appeal ruled that Assange could be extradited to the U.S. to face charges under the Espionage Act of 1917. The WikiLeaks website came to international attention in 2010, when it published a series of documents and films provided by U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. These leaks included the Baghdad airstrike collateral murder video and the Afghanistan war logs, all with evidence of war crimes. Six years later, WikiLeaks published the Democratic National Committee email leaks, which showed attempts to denigrate the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign and promote the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. Julian Assange was blamed for having helped Donald Trump win the election. However, the Trump administration, with Attorney General William Barr, showed no gratitude for Assange's alleged support. On May 23, 2019, they charged him with violating the Espionage Act of 1917 and raised the bar for him to 175 years in prison and demanded his extradition from the U.K. Ironically, the current Biden administration fully endorses the Donald Trump charges. The voices who condemn the granting of the extradition request are fellow journalists, publishers, and defenders of free speech and whistleblowers. However, Among those who get their information from commercial media, prejudice and bias towards Julian Assange cloud the issue. They call him a hacker and a rapist who helped Trump's presidential campaign. Allegations that even clouded the view of today's guest, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Meltzer, What follows is an in-depth exploration of the prejudice against Assange and where it is based on lies and illegal court proceedings. On these matters, at this time, nobody is more qualified than UN Special Rapporteur on Torture Niels Meltzer. Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi spoke to him on December 10, 2021. Matt Taibbi is an American author, journalist, and podcaster. He has reported on finance, media, politics, and sports. He's a contributing editor for Rolling Stone and co-host with Katie Halper of Useful Idiots. Katie Halper is a comedian, writer, filmmaker, podcaster, and political commentator. She is the host of the podcast, The Katie Helper Show. Here's Katie Helper introducing Niels Meltzer.
1: You are not only the Special Rapporteur on Torture for the UN, and you have a very significant biography, also a Swiss professor, author, and advocate in international law. You served in various war contexts as legal advisor to the International Committee for the Red Cross and as a security policy advisor to the Swiss government. And you also are the author of this book, um, The Trial of Julian Assange. And you describe in this book how you, and I think this is a really important thing to reach people who aren't already necessarily here, but you yourself was someone who was, you were turned off by by Julian Assange. Can you right. talk about that process, how you went from someone who actually ignored the pleas of his legal team to someone who turned into uh, a champion uh, for his legal rights and human rights? Yeah,
2: I... Yeah thanks for the question because that's really one of the most troubling aspects of the story for, for me uh, you know as a human rights expert so I, I have this mandate, which basically is my job is to, you know, or by, my mandate from the United Nations is to oversee the implementation to respect for the, the, the prohibition of torture and ill treatment in all UN member states and to to also investigate individual cases. Um, and so I receive, you know, uh, requests for interventions by, by torture victims and their relatives and lawyers every day, about 10 to 15 requests. And so one of those requests I received in December 2018 Assange at that point was still in the embassy uh, in London, was by his lawyers. And they they basically complained that his living conditions in the Ecuadorian embassy had turned inhumane and they wanted me to intervene on his behalf. And I just remember this visually. I was sitting on my computer and writing a report for the UN on corruption, political corruption, strikingly, and, and the provision of torture. And I see this little message flagging coming in my screen saying, you know, new message coming in. Uh, and, and the title was Julian Assange's lawyers are asking for your protection, and I immediately had this visceral reaction of like, no, not this one. I kind of swiped it off my screen and looked out of my eyes, you know, out of my mind, because I had this this image of oh, this is this hacker, rapist, you know, traitor hiding somewhere in an embassy because he doesn't want to stand justice and so on, and. He's just going to manipulate me. So I just kind of had this emotional reaction. His lawyers came back about three months later saying that there were these rumors he would be expelled imminently and sent to the U.S. They also sent me some pieces of evidence, some medical opinions by independent doctors. And and when I read those pieces, I realized that, well, this guy already applied about three months ago. And I asked myself, why, why didn't I actually deal with this case before? And I started becoming conscious of my prejudice. And I asked myself, well, wh- where do I have these images from? These, you know, these, the certainty that this is a bad guy, this is a traitor, this is a rapist, and so on. And I realized that I, I, I had, been, had absorbed this, basically, from public reporting over a decade, almost passively, unconsciously. That really scared me because I thought, well, my mandate is to see through these types of smokescreens. And if I, as a professional with, you know, 25 years of experience in some of the worst war areas and so on, if I can't see through the smoke screen, um, well, so what the average person who never even dealt with human rights, you know, what, what are they going to do? And so I, I felt like I, I owed it to my professional and personal integrity to at least look into this case. And so I decided to actually go and visit him in London. And I first wanted to visit him in the embassy when I announced it. I think they got cold feet at the UK government and the Ecuadorians. So within three days, they expelled him in a very hasty approach to make sure that to kind of to establish the facts on the ground. I think I'm, my announcement that I wanted to come and visit him may have accelerated it. I, knew, I know for a fact, and today we have the evidence that this had been planned for months ahead but they were speeding up the process when I announced my intention to visit. So I got to visit him, but only once he had been uh, arrested by the British and was already in Belmarsh prison in London in May, the 9th of May, 2019.
3: How damaging was the DNC leak to Assange's ability to rally sort of establishment liberals to his cause? You talk about this a little bit in your book. Did you notice a change in the way that people dealt with you, dealt with him, you know?
2: Yeah, well, I I mean, I got involved only after this, but when mm-hmm. I investigated the case, I saw that the way he was perceived in the public changed dramatically after the DNC leaks, but especially the way that the DNC leak story had been told by the Democratic Party, right? Because Clearly, the Democratic Party had a big interest in kind of making, making all those you know, problems disappear that had come up to the surface through those leaks. And so they had a, a vested interest in, in changing the narrative and finding, finding someone else to blame. And so very, very quickly, the story came up. Of, oh, this is like a, you know, a Russian conspiracy with uh, Assange at the center. And uh, he wanted to help Trump into office. And, and, and so basically, he was scapegoated for Trump's election victory. And uh, and that was obviously a convenient scapegoat for people you not know, having to ask themselves, well, you know, how exactly did the Democratic Party actually lose support uh, to a, such an extent that someone like Trump could be elected? And And this whole narrative of Assange wanted to harm the US by supporting Trump and collaborating with the Russians, none of which is proven, by the way, that has really harmed him and and obviously has 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 diminished and weakened his support base in the US. Similarly as the, the those rape allegations, the Swedish rape allegations have clearly um, you know destroyed much of his support base here in, in Europe. And here again there's no evidence whatsoever. I mean the, the Swedish authorities have pushed this narrative for nine years aggressively in public and always claimed that the only reason they're not uh, trying him and imprisoning him for rape is because he's hiding in the embassy as soon as he was arrested and was at the disposal of the Swedish. They closed the proceedings saying that they don't have enough evidence not to convict him but not even to charge him. And they pushed a rape narrative for 10 years, basically, and didn't have enough evidence to even press charges against him. And so what we see is all of those things that people think. those boxes, he's a rapist. Actually, there's no evidence even to charge him. Um, and, and there's actually contrary evidence as well, but we can talk about this if you want. And then the DNC stuff, well, he's not even charged for a crime in that relation because uh, that case was actually thrown out by a New York federal judge, a New York City judge, a uh, Southern District judge in, uh, in, in, in summer 2019 saying that, you know, everything he's done was protected by press freedom.
3: And- a Clinton-appointed judge, by the way.
2: Yeah, wow. so that was quite that was quite impressive, right? So mm-hmm. the the Democratic Party there really, you know, lost a very important case, and then this question of him be a traitor. Well, how can you be a traitor if you are not an American? <laughs> uh, how can you be a traitor to America if you're not American? Uh, you're not working for the Americans. You're not in America.
1: Yeah, uh, use that have- smear for Snowden and and um, Manning. That's who you should smear as traitors if you need to.
2: Yeah, but, you know, the thing is, I had this impression, you know, myself, and I haven't even reflected it. The thing is, we're we're not aware of how much of our prejudice we're just absorbing unconsciously. We're all looking for simple solutions. I don't even want to judge people who do that, because we all do that. The important point is that we're aware of it, and that we're prepared to question our prejudice. That's what's important, you know.
1: Yeah, I still get people saying to me even now, "Well, he released confidential information that put people's lives in danger, didn't curate it, and he helped Trump get elected."
2: Yes, he did release, you know, uh, confidential information, but so did you know Ellsberg, uh, so right. did all those whistleblowers that are protected under. So do all the New York Times. Right. I mean, they all exactly. co released this information right. with him. They actually, you know, selected it with him and so on. So. That's the job. That's what journalists do. They, they publish, you know, information. If it's secret information that's in the public interest that proves government misconduct, hey, that's actually the, the core role of the media. I think what people have forgotten today is that the role of the media is not to entertain you. It's to empower you. They're called the, the fourth estate, that's the fourth power after the government, the parliament, or the congress, or whatever, and and the judiciary. You have the press; they're overseeing how those other three powers are working. And when they when there's misconduct, they inform the public, so that democratically, you know, the the, the base of the country, the people, can actually take their, use their democratic rights to correct it. That's the role of the media. And that's exactly what Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have done. And And so I, I think it's very important that we're asking ourselves, why exactly is he in prison? What exactly did he do wrong? And then if they say, well, he helped Trump being elected. Well, okay. I'm not a friend of Trump's because he he wanted to bring back torture. Remember, he, he said, like, I'm gonna bring back waterboarding and much worse. I mean, how can I, in my function, be supportive of Trump? I'm not. But I just observed that he was an official candidate for the presidential election 2016, and half of the country voted for him. There is no entitlement of the political establishment like Hillary Clinton to be elected. You know, I and again, I'm not defending the election of Trump. I'm just saying this is just what an election is. Someone will win, someone will lose. Some people prefer this one, some people prefer the other. And if a journalist finds dirty information and you know that's true about one of the candidates, well, their function is to inform the public. And did they found dirty information that's true about the Democratic Party? Well, they did and they published it and it's true information. So, you know, I, why would that be a, a crime? But maybe the question is, how come the established parties have lost so much support in the general population? What have they done wrong if if the country cannot come up with a better candidate than Donald Trump? You know, I mean, what, where's the problem? It's not Julian Assange who's the problem. He hasn't elected him. He has not even a vote. He, I mean, he's an Australian, you know. And, and so I think it's very important that we keep our kind of straight mind. Also, when we're talking about, uh, you know, this person is being pursued for having published confidential information that hasn't harmed anybody. There's no evidence at all. Maybe it could have, theoretically, but it, there's no evidence that it did. But the information he published is it's uncontroversial evidence, hard evidence, that serious crime have been committed by the governments, Torture, war crimes, I mean, horrible stuff by the thousands. And who has been prosecuted for that? Nobody. So we have evidence for serious crimes, but nobody is being prosecuted. So the criminals walk free. But the the person, the witness in court, basically, who brings the evidence, who tells everybody, hey, these are the criminals, here's the evidence, he's being prosecuted for bringing the evidence? I mean, doesn't that turn our basic notion of justice upside down? You know, and, and I'm not saying Americans are war criminals. I'm just saying the American armed forces, just like any other armed force, when they engage in war, some people will commit war crimes. That's just the way it is, right? I mean, it's that's just because human beings are like this. And that's why we need courts to deal with it. And and here I really feel that's so, so scandalous about this case, that Telling the truth about crime becomes criminalized while committing crimes, you know, you enjoy impunity.
3: Speaking of the UK, I was wondering if you could you could comment on their role in this whole proceeding. How well or not did they uphold international standards in their treatment of him? Can you speak a little bit to what happened to Assange while he was in, you know, yeah. behind bars in England?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that that's one of the most shocking observations I made because I'm also a professor at the British University. And so I, I'm very proud of the British, you know, tradition of the rule of law and democracy and so on, and, and the separation of power and all of those democratic principles. So, so when he was arrested, I thought, like, yeah, maybe, you know, when before when before I visited him in prison, I thought, well, okay, maybe he's not well. We'll make a medical assessment and then we'll make some recommendations to the UK. But the UK is a democracy. It's a rule of law country. I'm sure, you know, they will give him a fair proceeding and he won't be extradited to the US because it's obvious that the prison conditions he would be exposed to are inhumane and unacceptable from a human rights perspective. So I was really shocked to see that the day he was arrested, they immediately brought him to trial. Uh, not not for a, a you know a detention proceeding but he was actually tried he, he had his 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 trial on the day he was arrested from the embassy for a crime that he was uh, accused of having committed 7 years earlier which is the crime of bail violation when he took uh, asylum in the embassy and he was convicted on that very day so i mean imagine you've been locked up in an embassy for 7 years you're being pulled out Uh, Without advance notice, no proceeding, no rule of law proceeding, no defense, nothing. You're being pulled out of that embassy. He must be under shock. And he's pushed immediately before a judge and tried and convicted that very day. And the judge insulted him in public court, you know, as being a narcissist, uh, that he has only his, you know, egotistical self-interest in mind. But Julian Assange had not said anything during the whole hearing, except I plead not guilty. But then also what happened is that he was in extradition detention. He is actually just being secured. So in case the U.S. wins his extradition case after a couple of years, he's not, you know, taking asylum somewhere or escaping otherwise. But you don't put someone who's nonviolent, who's not serving a sentence in the the toughest high security prison of the country in Belmarsh, which is called the Guantanamo of Britain, uh, you know, where he is basically, you know, in in danger inside the prison. Uh, If you look at another extradition trial that that happened in the UK was Augusto Pinochet, the, the previous dictator of Chile, who had been accused of crimes against humanity, torture, murder, I mean, serious stuff, not journalism. But he was not put in prison during the extradition proceeding, for one and a half years, he was you know, being accommodated in a, in a noble villa. He was visited by Margaret Thatcher. Again, you can see someone who has been accused of real serious mass crimes. He's being treated like a gentleman. And Julian Assange, who is non-violent and who has only committed, committed, I mean, conducted journalism, he's being isolated to an extent that it was impossible for him to have sufficient contact with his lawyers to prepare his defense. Because he was exposed to a Swedish proceeding, to an extradition proceeding by the uh, the U.S., to a bail violation proceeding by the U.K., and also an Ecuadorian proceeding regarding his belongings that had been confiscated in the the embassy when he was arrested and just handed over to the U.S. without any uh, rule of law considerations. All of this, I mean, you can't handle that from an isolation cell, Uh, you know, with five minute phone calls with your lawyer. You have to sit down with a lawyer and and there is no legal basis to keep him in a high security prison. All they can do is really house arrest. But again, all of this, I mean, consistently you can see that that his uh, due process rights are being violated at, at every stage of every proceeding he's ever been exposed to and no legal remedy ever works in his favor. And, you know, mistakes can happen, even in the most perfect democracy and rule of law country, courts make mistakes. We're all human, right? But that's why we have superior instances that can then correct that. That never happens in his case. They always find some kind of an excuse of why his rights don't apply in this case. And, you know, there's there's an extradition treaty between the UK and the US. And there isn't a provision in that treaty that explicitly prohibits the extradition for political offenses. Now, what's the quintessential political offense in law school? It's espionage. That's the example. As always, the political offense. You can never extradite someone for espionage. And the UK and the US agreed in their treaty that that's prohibited. It was a no-brainer for his defense team to say, here's the treaty, It prohibits this extradition. You can't extradite him for espionage charges. So now the the judge comes and says, oh, yeah, but this treaty is not part of British law. It's actually international law because it's a treaty between the U.S. and the U.K. And I, as a British judge, can only apply English law. And, And it's some kind of a weird, nonsensical argument to basically come to an absurd conclusion that a treaty concluded between the US and the UK government doesn't apply between the US and the UK government in this case. It's grotesque and, and they do this with a straight face.
3: Are you surprised at all by the um, disinterest in the case uh, among uh, sort of the American press, the inability to see the consequences of this case for them? personally going forward surprises me a little bit
2: well it did it did surprise me in the beginning by now I'm used to it but I I thought like look this hey guys this is about your rights I mean it's about it's really about you it's not even about us I mean yes it's about Assange for Assange and his family but that's a, f- a few people in the world for all the rest of us it's about you and your rights and your kids you know I mean seriously if telling the truth becomes a crime, I mean, what kind of world are we living in? You know, I mean, what are we going to tell our children? You know, don't tell the truth because it's, it's a crime. You know, if, if you see something bad happening, you know, just lie about it and pretend everything's okay because otherwise you're the bad guy. I mean, what kind of world are we going to live in? It's really weird. Um, I, I suspect, though, also that if you look at the truth of the Assange case, I mean, it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's like a keyhole to look into a parallel universe where we see into the reality of how international relations are really being conducted. And and once you start realizing this, things become really complicated. Because it's not just, oh, this is the bad guy, this is the hacker, this is the traitor, this is the rapist. So we have the scapegoat. He he helped Trump become the president, so we don't have to ask uncomfortable questions about ourselves. So what do we do? I mean, how do how do we correct the reality as it is that basically governments do as they please and give themselves impunity through their classification and secrecy system and and they they persecute anybody who threatens this. So how exactly are we going to change that? That that becomes complicated.
1: Also, how are people who claim to hate Trump and hate Assange because of how much uh, he allegedly helped Trump I don't understand how they're not upset that Joe Biden is now siding with Donald Trump over Obama because Obama stopped. He knew that that there was the New York Times problem, right? That if he went after Julian Assange, he'd ultimately have to say, well, if it's so bad to publish that, then it was bad for the New York Times, too. Right. So he kind of puts the brakes on. Then we get Trump in and he and Pompeo go and go full, full court press, full court press. Right. And. Now all these people who call Trump Cheeto Mussolini are siding with Biden, who is siding with Trump. And why is Biden siding with Trump over Obama? And can he be shamed? Like, what what is to be? What can be done now? Because you are a very, your background, you're a very objective person, and you describe in your book how you become kind of an activist. Yeah. You're forced into that because no, and even your book is part of your activism because no one is paying attention. So, uh, what can be done?
2: I think the only fair solution for Assange and for all of us, frankly, is for the Biden administration to drop this case and to admit that publishing secret information that proves serious crime is in the public interest of the American people and the world public. Because we don't want people who have committed serious crimes walking around freely. You know, nobody why should rapists and torturers and murderers walk around freely? You know, I mean we, we don't want these types of things. And that also gives leg- legitimacy to a government and to the armed forces and to police forces and the CIA and so on if their criminals are being prosecuted and filtered out. But if that, not, that no longer happens, you know, what does the U.S. then stand for? What does the Biden administration stand for when he persecutes this man who is too frail to even attend his appeals hearing in the U.K.? I mean, he, he couldn't even through video link stay concentrated long enough to watch that hearing. And he's a very intelligent man. He was so strongly medicated for his medical state of health that he couldn't even follow those proceedings. How can we even discuss to extradite him to the U.S. where a mammoth proceeding in Alexandria at the espionage court is awaiting him? That's just a humanitarian bit. And then the question, and why again is he in the prison in the first place? Because he's a journalist? I mean, seriously, he's an inconvenient truth teller. But what's inconvenient really is not he, it's the truth. So this is really, really urgent because once it has become a crime to tell the truth, as I always say, we live in a tyranny. It's going to be too late.
0: That was part of a one-hour program by Katie Alper and Matt Taibbi with Nils Meltzer, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Professor of International Law at the University of Glasgow. Meltzer refers to his book, The Trial of Julian Assange, due out in February 2022. The publisher Verso calls it, quote, the shocking story of the illegal persecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and the implications for the whistleblowers of the future. Thanks to Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi, For their timely interview, you can find their over one-hour program on YouTube and the Useful Idiots channel under Assange. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelauden.